0: Today in the garage, we have Craig Bottomley, and from the Crown's office, Jennifer Traherne. Jennifer Traherne is an assistant Crown attorney in Toronto. Prior to joining the Crown's office in 2018, Jennifer was a partner at Javid Frost Traherne. Her career in criminal law includes clerking for the Court of Appeal for Ontario and the Supreme Court of Israel, as well as working as an associate at the firm Shrek & Green. Jennifer has taught criminal law at Osgoode Hall Law School and currently teaches legal ethics at U of T with Justices Michael Cold and Brice Davies. Along with our second guest, Craig Bottomley, and her former partner, Josh Frost, Jennifer has authored a very useful book called Justice Delayed, A Practitioner's Guide to Section 11B. Craig Bottomley is a criminal defense lawyer practicing in Toronto. Craig has successfully represented clients charged with all matters of offenses, including murder, manslaughter, organized crime, and sexual assault. Craig has a particular interest in litigating breaches of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and has secured numerous acquittals for clients in this fashion. Craig divides his practice evenly between trial and appellate work and has argued numerous appeals in both the Supreme Court of Canada and the Court of Appeal for Ontario. Craig is also a frequent guest lecturer at the University of Toronto and Osgoode Hall Law Schools. He is often asked to provide analysis for media outlets and is a regular panelist in legal education conferences for both lawyers and judges. As indicated, Craig is the co-author of Justice Delayed, Practitioner's Guide to 11B. In today's garage, Jennifer and Craig tell us about their early experiences at the bar, their motivations as lawyers, and the methods they use to cope with tough losses. Whether you're driving your Volvo XC90, riffing on your Gibson, or crafting a cross-examination, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tool. Craig... And Jennifer, I'm so happy that you both could join us here in the garage. Hey! Hello. And Jennifer is the first member of the Crown's office to be featured on the Law Garage podcast.
1: I'm honored to be asked. Brave soul walking into the lion's den.
0: (laughs) And as a special um, welcome for Jennifer, we were able to secure the actual original Law Garage, where um, now Justice Paul Cooper began his uh, famous garage series series seminars. So we have the garage open and we're here. Excuse the background noise if, if you hear it, but we wanted to have a, a special environment for a crown attorney. So I understand that both um, Jen and, and Craig, you guys have worked together or started, you started your career together at some point.
2: That's right. Yes. We were both associates at Shrek and Green in the early 2000s. <laughs> she,
1: she says it while she laughs, but like the whole time I just tortured her like that was the entire experience was me making her more and more nervous and on edge uh, about everything
0: do do you either of you feel comfortable about sharing a little more about that experience
1: i i I would delight in sharing those experiences (laughs) (laughs) and i'll tell you so they i'll this is how smart jen trahern is is they were not looking for an associate at shrek and green she uh and then they found out that she was a human being that existed on the planet and and hired her and that was the that was it. And so she came in and I'm like, you know, this uh, go, I'm going to old city hall, you know, scrapping it out and she's coming from, you know, Supreme Court of Israel and clerking at the Court of Appeal. And uh, she came in and it's one of her first files and she's been breathing rarefied air for like the last couple of years. And she's got a client for the first time and You know, he's a great kid and, you know, there must have been some misunderstanding because he's been charged with a criminal offense. And Jen is of the view that if she can just explain that to the Crown Attorney, they're going to drop the charges. So she writes this letter. It was beautiful. It was the best thing I'd ever read. This letter was eloquent. It was compelling. It pulled at your heartstrings just the right amount. And I read through this thing and it's perfect. And so I, because I'm funny, pull out a big black marker as she brings it to me and says, can you read this? Can you proofread this? And I take a black marker and I write crap across the top in big <laughs> letters. And I look up from this obvious hilarious joke to see tears welling up in eye. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And nobody takes me seriously. What are you doing? And she's like, oh, yes, yeah, very funny. And she's like wiping the t- I'm like, listen, it's a great letter. It's not going to work. Uh, but you know, God bless you. And she sends it off to the crown attorney, uh, to like, I think a deafening silence of response where they just did not care. and did not withdraw the church. I
2: think there was a garbage can under the fax machine and it just like fell directly <laughs> into the garbage can. But so I tried. The,
0: the story is true.
2: The story is true. Yes. He made me cry on one of my first days at Trek and Green, and we've been friends ever since. Uh, it was not the
1: last time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in in my defense, she later killed one of my clients, but that's that's a different story. Uh, you want to tell it? You want to hear it? <laughs> you want to tell it?
2: <laughs> uh, that is the client over whom I cried. Not no, we, We've been on the, doing this for five minutes now, and there's already two stories about me crying. Hopefully, this will be the last one, but... Uh, That is the client that I mentioned to you who was in custody at Old City Hall, who I was sent to do his bail hearing in my first few weeks of being a lawyer and I had zero courtroom experience. I didn't understand that if I had resurrected G. Arthur Martin and retained him, that uh, we still were gonna lose the bail hearing. I thought there was something I was supposed to say that would get this client released. And I thought by not saying it, it was therefore my inexperience and therefore my fault that he was being detained and uh, he was very very unwell he was uh, unmedicated his schizophrenia was out of control he believed he was being eaten from the inside out by aliens he was picking at his face uh, and his face was bleeding because he was trying to get at the aliens (laughs) it was a bad 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 scene Uh, And I spent three days trying to get a release plan together on a legal aid bail (laughs) to get him out. Uh, And as I finally made my submissions in this contested bail hearing, I realized I was going to lose. And I was looking at him and thinking, how is this man going to cope in jail? And I didn't, before I had been called to the bar, I didn't even understand that we sent mentally ill people to jail. I mean, that seems so ridiculous to me. Uh, I'd never seen that before and I was overwhelmed and i started to cry in my submissions and the (laughs) clerk of the court passed me a kleenex box with a post-it note attached that said don't be scared you're doing great (laughs) it was really nice it was really nice i will never forget that uh and i had to blow my nose in the middle of my submissions that's how much i was crying and uh he was detained and then i went to see him in the cells after outside 102 court to explain he'd been detained and I would do my best to get him released blah 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 and I was still crying and uh he he looked at me and he said you're crying and he was like floridly psychotic but all of a sudden he was very focused on how I was crying and I said yeah uh no I didn't say yeah I said no no I I have a cold which was obviously the most ridiculous thing to say and he said no you're crying but at least I know one person cares about me (laughs) And then I just was crying even more. Anyways, uh, and then uh, a few weeks later in custody, he died. He died in custody, and uh, we still don't know why. They wouldn't tell me why. They would only tell his next of kin, who I couldn't find. Um, But uh, that is why Craig says that I killed his
1: client. So she went (laughs) off the court, she came back, and if she looked white after the bail hearing, she came back, she looked ashen (laughs) after this set date. And I'm like how'd it go how's Robert she's like not good I'm like what do you mean how did it go she's like not well I'm like what do you mean She's like he's dead (laughs) (laughs) like what He died in custody I think at some point we found out it was a staph infection or something like that I don't
2: I don't know I don't remember I just remember sitting because he didn't come I was in 111 at Old City Hall waiting and waiting and I finally called the jail and said you know where is he and the guy at the other side just as casually as you would say anything at the other end said oh oh no he's dead pardon like I just it was anyways
1: and, and the the point kind of if if you're because I think you sort of had us here to tell us like here's all the ways that we embarrassed ourselves and screwed up in our young careers is is Jen and I say this I, I like she's going to object when I say this and she's going to try and stop me but I'm a lot stronger than her is Jen is the smartest lawyer and maybe the smartest person I know uh, she is an incredible advocate. She she writes factums that are like uh, like a like a thriller novel. Like I can't like when I used to read her stuff, I'm like, this is amazing. I like, read through she's the best lawyer, uh, that that like just incredible. And it, that's how she handles, you know, her first bail hearing is so, so if you're a young lawyer listening to this, that's the point. Is that you know through all of these things that we that we're going to tell you about over the next however long I, this if we're here to talk about how we've screwed up and embarrassed ourselves, I assume this podcast is about six hours long <laughs> uh, because we got a lot of stories and if you're a young lawyer uh, there's hope there's hope because we don't screw up nearly as much anymore
2: it yes, it has been almost twenty years since I cried in court well that's <laughs> that's an achievement, but
1: <laughs> it's been about a half hour for me
0: <laughs> how do you How did you get through that at that time, though, Jen?
2: I I mean, I was horribly embarrassed by it. Um, And for a long time, whenever I would see Justice Schneider, who was the judge at the bail hearing, I just wanted to crawl under a rock. Um, But having put a lot of thought into it, um, I think that I have learned really to see it as a source of strength uh, because I've learned how to channel that uh, sense of outrage into submissions rather than... Uh, just being upset about it. So I think it was, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I was right. Like it was a really bad situation. That man was very unwell and he shouldn't have been in jail and the outcome was terrible. So I try and look on that as a source of strength, but I still kind of cringe every time I see Justice Schneider.
1: (laughs) The other answer is chocolate. We ate a lot of chocolate. Yes. (laughs) Like I, like when I left Shrek and Green, Jen called me like a couple months later. She's like, you know, I've lost eight pounds since you left here <laughs> because we would just <laughs> enable each other to go downstairs and buy chocolate bars. <laughs> when
0: when did you leave Shrek and Green?
1: I left after, I think, four years. I think I was there like 2000, the end of sort of 2002 to beginning of 2007, something like that. And I left and went out on my own and uh, Breece Davis, now the Honorable Madam Justice Davis and uh, Richard Litkowski, Uh, had just opened a chambers on Prince Arthur, and I moved in there with Heather Pringle, now the Honourable Madam Justice Heather Pringle, uh, who I started a firm with uh, shortly thereafter, and we were partners together for about uh, a decade before she got appointed.
0: And how about uh, your transition, Jennifer?
2: Um, I left about a year later, so uh, when Craig left... Andres and Mara hired Dean Embry, who uh, was lovely to work with, um, but I just couldn't do it without Craig. (laughs) So I left about a year later and uh, I went to work for the Chief Justice of the Superior Court for a few years uh, doing criminal policy and other things that are not criminal law related. Um, And then I really missed private practice. I really missed litigating. uh, And so I came back to private practice and moved into Simcoe chambers.
0: I just want to ask you, um, how did you get to the Supreme Court of Israel?
2: What? <laughs> uh, actually, it's uh, when I was clerking for the Court of Appeal, um, the then Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice Barak, came to speak to the judges at the Court of Appeal, and he mentioned that uh, they always have uh, three clerks, usually an American, usually a Canadian, and often a German clerk at the Supreme Court of Israel, because they don't have... A written constitution but they have judge created constitutional principles by which they measure other legislation so they're very interested in constitutional law from jurisdictions that have a written constitution so they try and have uh, clerks from different jurisdictions so my job the summer i was there was to basically summarize section 15 of the charter for them that's what they were interested in so they wanted to know like everything the Supreme court and every appellate court had ever said about section 15 of the charter. So that was what I did for a summer. And then they, and they had two Americans the summer that I was there and they, they rely on that kind of thing from other jurisdictions when they're developing their own constitutional
1: principles.
0: It's a pretty unique experience.
1: Yeah. She's a lot smarter than me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When did you cry in court last night?
1: it's been a long time so heather and i uh heather pringle and i had a murder trial in uh, hamilton and uh we had a guy his name was ian you would like ian he was a good kid who would had a rough time and uh he was alleged to have um so he he and a couple of buddies were building a grow up basically in this house that had been rented to them, but like the the guy that rented to him was in on it. He like he wanted them to turn it into a grow up and he would get a cut and blah blah. blah. So they've been up for like three days doing crack and building a grow up and somebody comes, knocks on the door, and uh <clears throat> they answer the door. And this guy's just gotten out of prison. The guy's knocking on the door. And uh he's looking for a phone to use. I think to like call, like he literally just got out of prison and he's wandered down the street and he's trying to call to, to get someone to take him home. And they're paranoid from the crack use and the building of the grow up. And, uh, they think this guy's here to set us up for a robbery. So they sort of talk themselves into this after he leaves and they drive around Hamilton, uh, was the allegation, uh, to, uh, find him and beat him up and the allegation so he dies uh from a hammer blow to the chest and the allegation was that ian had done it and we believed we very much believed he hadn't done it uh and you know you as as maybe as only defense lawyers can right like you got to sort of convince yourself of these things i uh,
0: just want to interrupt there. i actually i think i actually worked on this case
1: Was it because it was a retrial we took it to the court of appeal later but was this the co-accused was music yeah that was the co-accused wow okay go on so we, we ran the first trial and, uh, you know, Heather, Heather was senior to me and she, you know, she, she did a lot of the heavy lifting. I, I, my claim to fame on that was I gave the pathologist a pretty, uh, a pretty good, uh, beating and cross-examination, but Heather, like, you know, she carried the the heavy load and, um, <clears throat> closing argument to the jury. And then the jury goes out. We waited for days, days, like like at least three days sitting in that council lounge, just stewing in Hamilton. And the jury came back and they found him guilty of second degree murder. And Heather started sobbing right there. She broke down, started crying. And uh, it, like I spoke to, it was adjourned for sentencing. And uh, we drove home in the worst traffic. Like you can imagine. So we got in my little Corolla and, and, and drove back to the city. I dropped her off at home. I went home. I made it home and I made it up the front steps. And I didn't make it any further. I just dissolved, uh, trying to get up the stairs. To, I was in a townhouse then, and I just collapsed in the, in the front hall, just sobbing. Uh, that was the, and <clears throat> that's, that's I, I didn't cry in court, but, but pretty close thereafter. And then I uh, was sitting there and uh, thinking of grounds of appeal. <laughs> it's a long drive
0: back from Hamilton after that a conviction on a murder case. Tell I, you it, that
1: it was. So the whole the best part of that trial was uh, there was a gap in my musical education. Uh, Heather was horrified to find that I knew nothing about the Eagles. And so she brought a, a CD of the Eagles greatest hits. And we to say we listened to it there and back every day. Like, it was a it was carpool karaoke uh, the whole way there and back every day. It was the best. It was great. We'd you know, we'd sing on the way there. We'd sing on the way back. And then this—it turned from a karaoke party into a funeral pretty fast. Uh, that ride back in rush hour traffic from Hamilton to Toronto—it was awful. We stopped at a, a, a liquor store on the way back, and we got out and we went to uh, to just to buy a couple bottles of wine. And on display on this huge display, there was a wine that I've never seen before or since called Silver Hammer. <laughs> so we're like well i guess we're buying that. we bought two bottles that was it was really good one i've never seen it again
0: so it's a it's a, ha, it's, a ha, it's from the hammer yeah Basically. it must be it, well i
1: here we go so i did the sentencing because heather she's like i can't do the sentencing like you have to do the sentencing well and, is
0: there anything worse than doing a sentencing oh, on a murder
1: oh on a, yeah i mean a first degree murder sentencing is pretty short uh but a second uh, you know, you got an argument to make, and the Crown's argument was this kid had been convicted of attempted murder before, and had gotten a lenient sentence, and therefore you really had to nail him this time around. And my argument, and I said this, it's intellectual dirty pool, Your Honor. Just because he didn't get hammered the last time doesn't mean you should hammer him this time. And I made that argument in a couple of ways, and I feel tugging on my gowns, and I look down. I'm like, what? Heather looks up, and she's like, stop saying hammered. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So how do you, how do you, besides the wine, how do you get over a loss like that?
1: Uh, <clears throat> uh, there are A couple answers. So one is, like, I, I found out in my very first bail hearing that I am not a very good lawyer when I'm angry. And I try very hard uh, to, to maintain a clinical detachment. And, you know, like an emergency room surgeon, they fly into a panic. They're not very good surgeon you know you you see the bullet wound and you treat it like a clinical problem and that is the way i I very much try uh to approach these things i try not to be emotional about i don't always succeed uh but i I never lose my temper in court uh, and i I try to stay uh removed um and the other answer uh is uh i fight people in a padded room two or three times a week (laughs) i go to brazilian jiu-jitsu and it is very powerful medicine for, uh, you know, all the, all the bad emotions that can come with this job. And, uh, you know, I find that when, you know, I got some 240 pound guy trying to choke the life out of me, I really focus on that problem. You know, <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> think about anything else. But one of the questions I used to ask when I was hiring uh, associates was, what do you do that's not criminal law? Because if you don't have something else, like the the law is a very the criminal law is a tough mistress and she'll eat you alive you need something else and i don't care if it's brazilian jiu-jitsu or uh dance or volleyball whatever it is you need something physical that you can throw yourself into uh, to, uh, to get rid of this stuff because if you carry it around with you you know it, it leads to you know there are other ways to deal with these problems and they usually involve alcohol like it's yeah. you know you don't want that uh, so that's that's how I deal with it. Is I, I you know I, I fight guys that try to kill me.
0: And how do you deal with it, Jen?
2: Not well. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she hits the bottle pretty hard. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, I mean I. I mean now I have two small children, so uh, really I have very little time other than to spend time with my children and work. But when I'm with my children, I really try to put my phone in another room with the ringer off and I don't think about work at all so that uh, always uh, is a good distraction and sort of reminds me about what's really important in life um, and also I uh, spend some time with my dog who I was thinking the other day is sort of like a therapy dog <laughs> and, and that we spend a lot of time together and uh, you know I try and have I was just telling Greg that I'm trying to learn how to quilt because that requires a lot of focus and uh, I don't think about what I'm doing at work but Uh, Most of the time, I just have time to work and spend with my kids these days.
1: (laughs) Because what better stress relief than a couple of small children? (laughs) Well, they take up a lot of your time.
0: I'm just curious to find out, um, is there a difference in the stress from being a defense lawyer and being a crown attorney?
2: For me, there is, because the thing that I found most stressful about being a defense lawyer was the business side of it. Um, I was not good at it. I hated doing it. I hated asking people for money. I hated keeping track of my trust, whatever, balancing my trust account or whatever you were supposed to do. I don't even remember. Uh, like I <laughs> The I law found society that... is listening and writing this down. <laughs> yes, I, don't, I don't have a trust account anymore. Um, you know, just uh, trying to bring in the good work. I hated that. Uh, I just found that all very stressful. And so one of the things that- uh, I really like about being in the Crown's office is that you don't have to worry about where the work is coming from. The next case will always come to you and you don't have to worry about how you're going to get paid. And for me, that's uh, alleviated a huge amount of the stress.
0: What kind of stress comes with being a Crown, though?
2: Um, I found it when I started at the Crown's office, I was on contract uh, and I found that much more stressful than I had anticipated um, because I just you know it's a it's a very different world from the defense bar and I didn't know if I would bring to the office what they wanted me to bring uh, and of course I had shut down my practice in order to join the crown's office so it would have been hard to go backwards from that point so that was very stressful um but uh I think in general uh, it's just the the I find the cases where there are child victims uh, more stressful than any other kind of case because of the prospect of a retrial, because I'm only doing appeals. Um, and so I always sort of have in the back of my head that some child victim might have to testify again. Uh, you know, if I manage not to save this conviction in one way or the other, that doesn't, you know, sometimes they shouldn't be saved and that's okay. Um, I just conceded an appeal a few weeks ago, but, um, but, uh, that, that sort of weighs on, on me in the back of my mind.
0: Correct.
1: I wonder if you, because for me the 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 worst. I I I like the business side. I like you know uh, I'm you know I I enjoy telling you know I enjoy getting money out of clients. I think it's a good thing to do. <laughs> um, look at this problem you've created. Want me to fix it? <laughs> um, and uh, and I I like the business side, and I'm very fortunate that I've got uh, a number of wonderful associates that you know I can I can give some of the work to that stresses me out. Um, The thing that stresses me out is sort of the nonstop nature is that, you know, uh, you you get home, uh, you you know, you take off the tie, you you relax while you sit down, turn on the TV, and then the phone rings. Hey, what's going on with my case? Or, hey, uh, what's this? Or, hey, the uh, the worst question ever. Like, I see the look on your face. Uh, What's
0: going on with with my case?
1: I'll tell you what's going on. You're calling me. I... I asked you if I could swear before this started, <laughs> but like if you call I'll tell you what's going on. you're calling me at six o'clock, you fucking asshole like why are you calling now you waited till like six on a sunday you know i've res- i've gotten what drives me crazy more than anything else is a call at like five thirty a m that they don't leave a message I'm like what was so important that you had to call at five thirty but not quite important to leave a voicemail uh so Anyway, the, it's the nonstop nature that drives me a little crazy, and I think there's a value to taking the phone, turning it off, putting it in the other room, but I suck at that. I, I'm always worried, you know, I'm going to miss something. I'm going to miss a call from a client. We're going to miss a retainer. I'm going to And one of my associates is going to be in trouble and need some urgent help, and uh, – and it, It's probably good from a business point of view because clients know they can get hold of you. It's probably not great from a cardiovascular point of view later on when they try and perform the surgery. And they're like, oh, his heart just exploded.
0: How do you feel about that call when it comes through, especially those overnight calls and it's something good?
1: Yeah, from the police station? Yeah. Yeah, I love that call. I still, I like the 3 a.m. Uh, I don't love the drinking and driving calls at three a.m. Like I don't know what advice I'm like. Okay, well, here's what I want you to do: keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. Okay. Well, listen. What I want to do? I want to talk to you about this. And I'm like, I'm not sure you're getting the core concept here, pal. Uh, the so the I I but I I love the the three a.m. call. Hey, we just picked up your client. Uh, we found a loaded gun in his car, and uh, you know, eight ounces of fentanyl, and this and that. And I'm like, great. Put put him on the phone. When's the here? Let's go. Like I like that. I like the fight. I like the challenge. I don't like the. I I really don't like the the maintenance calls. The handholding. I'm not I'm not a particularly uh, emotional guy about these things. I I don't. I'm not good at the handholding. Well, I, that
0: that can wear you down. Yeah. Like, that's the part of the profession that actually wears you down. And we're not you know trained to, in social work. That's something that we choose to do. Or, and if some people do it better than others. Yeah. And the more you get involved in that, then that adds more stress and on your on your the way you practice.
1: Yeah. And I you know, I've been doing this for it'll be it's coming up on 20 years. And I am at a point now where I've got a number of associates and I know for the high maintenance clients like uh, uh, I got a couple of associates who are particularly good at handling that sort of thing and i'm like okay just stick handle this guy till we get to the trial and i'll handle the trial but more than anything the call the call that drives me crazy the most is the call you've already had six times okay yeah but you know do you think i can get bail okay well as i explained the last five times right like it'll depend on this issue or that issue and and, let's wait we have to wait and find out or we have to wait and do this and 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 then the call comes the next day okay but well, what about bail i'm like well it's going to be a lot harder uh, after i murder you for you to be released <laughs> from the prison that's just the way oh, I mean, he's, he's going to he get, get released. out right away he's not going to like the terms <laughs> of his release
0: but i know you're excited you do a lot of charter litigation and, and does it still excite you in yeah. the current circumstance
1: 100%. i just i just finished um uh, I had a great, uh, so good. I love the in-car camera. Oh, my God. I just finished one up in uh, Newmarket in front of a great judge. I don't know if we're supposed to be naming him, but wonderful judge. Uh, I, di- I hadn't done anything in front of her before, uh, but very fair. And, um, you know, the guy uh, gets pulled over on a quote-unquote sobriety check because of this evasive maneuver that he made. Uh, it's no evasive maneuver on the camera and the cop, of course, it had happened just before we started recording and I managed to get, I can't remember how I got him, but I got his notes from the, the stop previous where he also pulled someone over for a quote unquote evasive maneuver, which also led to a cannabis act search. Um, and and whatever the first cannabis act search of my client was probably bonafide because you can hear him on the on the tape. Uh, cops like, I smell weed. He's like, Yeah, I got a joint in my pocket. And he's like, Well, you can't do that. And he's like, Oh, I thought I could. <laughs> and then they no. So they end up searching the thing, and they but they don't find anything criminal. They find things that are suspicious. They find a lot of cash, like twelve grand in cash in the car, but they don't find uh, anything actually criminal. So the two officers retreat to the cruiser. And then they – and then I they, I think they forgot the mics were on. And they have this, like, two-minute-long conversation about their plan to violate the charter. And <laughs> so in cross-examination, I'm just, like, teeing them up and knocking it out of the park. Like, I was shooting fish in a barrel, and I had a blast. And, like, I'm a, one of the cops, I'm like, at this point in, in the evening, uh, you thought you were dealing with a drug dealer. No, 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 I didn't think that at all. all right, I'm going to – You sure? Yeah. You never said that? No. I'll play the thing for you. This guy's a drug dealer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. For sure. That's what I think too. That's you, right? (laughs) It was just, it was a ton of fun.
0: What's what's charter litigation like from the Crown's perspective?
2: You you know, what's funny is I don't do a lot of it. Um, It has hardly come up since I've joined the Crown's office. I don't know whether they just don't get appealed that often or whether, I think there's sort of a core group of people in my office who do, uh, like Section 8 in particular kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it has hardly come up. I have done almost exclusively uh, sex assaults, child sex assaults, and murders. Since what I about I as a federale? Uh, yeah, I, when I prosecuted uh, trial trial work on behalf of the federal crown, then I did a lot of drug prosecutions, and I learned a lot. Um, but uh, But, yeah, so I did a lot of charter um, litigation then, for sure.
0: I'm always wondering from the perspective of the crown attorneys, whether or not they like to litigate the charter. I mean.
1: I've got one coming up on Monday. Uh, where you know I filed a factum. It's an interesting. It's an interesting issue. It's like a, one of these utility pole cameras.
0: Oh, that's becoming more and more common, right?
1: <coughs> yeah, and there's some great uh, cases from BC. If you're uh, if you're listening to this and wondering, there's uh, Flintroy and uh, Wong, uh, both from uh, BC wonderful superior court decisions that say you got to get a warrant to do this and in my case not only didn't the the, they not get a warrant the affiant like really undersold how this they just call it like there's a public view camera that happens to be there like they may as well have called it innocuous charter compliant camera uh and they uh so we've got this uh coming up on monday and uh i the crown attorney that's assigned to it i think is genuinely excited to to litigate the issue she's also made me she's trying to make me an offer i can't refuse she's waiting on um word from her boss but uh i i think she's genuinely interested in in having a fight about it so that's kind of fun
0: do, do you like it when the crown is uh interested in having a fight
1: uh yeah i mean i think a defense lawyer's best friend is an overworked crown attorney right <laughs> like if, if they can't if they don't have time to prepare properly uh, that's wonderful, but I, I, you know, I like I like a fair fight. I like you know, I, I, you do a lot of homicides. I I like doing homicides be, like, one, it's you know, it's sort of the it's the big show, but also, you know, you get a dedicated crown, you get dedicated police. It's a it's a scrap, and you know, it's it's usually crowns who can who can write a factum. It's always crowns that can cross examine. Uh, so it's you know, I I enjoy that challenge.
0: Yeah, you don't really realize how. Um, less challenging, the other work is, until you once you leave that homicide trial and you go back to your regular life. Yeah. Like oh, three day provincial court trial. Whatever. <laughs> Crown walks in with six briefs. <laughs> they don't know who their cops are. And you, you
1: can see all the issues, right? Yeah, like yeah, you've yeah. got like the oh, I'm doing a shoplifting. Okay, uh, I'm really I'm I'm ready for this. I remember like the first time I came I came I came out of an eight month long jury trial, uh, for Hells Angels, Crim Org, and you know, and we happened to win the crim org. We knocked it all out. It was great. And then my next matter was like, uh, like a neighbor on neighbor punch up. <laughs> I went in and like, here's nine factums and I destroyed the destroyed the witness. I'm like, I think, I think I might have kind of hit a fly with a Buick on this one. It was, uh, it was you just you're over, you know, you overwhelm the case because that's what you're used to now.
0: What do you think about that, uh, Jen? In terms of transitioning from the more serious matters to less serious matters or as a prosecutor even as a defense lawyer
2: yeah no for sure on on both i mean uh it's 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 a nice relief after a lengthy complicated case to have like a little like a little case where you can sort of carry all the issues in your head all at once and you know you read like in my case because i'm only doing appeals you read the transcript you're like okay here are the problems. Here's what I'm going to have to say about it. I can tell you the cases off the top of my head. That is, you know, it feels like a vacation after doing a lengthy, complicated case.
1: When you're, when you're doing the bigger appeals and you get like, I, like I, I, I hate being the respondent. I've only done it twice, I think, at the Court of Appeal. Uh, I hate it because as the appellant, I know what I'm going to say. Like, here's my script. Here's my argument. Here's my case law. You know, I've got everything tabbed in, in order. I'm ready to go. But as the respondent, You have no idea like what which one of these five issues are they going to call on you about and and how is this going to develop in their argument like do you which did you like you've done a ton of appeals as a defense lawyer is there I guess you can't you can't say. I na- I like being a defense lawyer far better than I like being a crowd but <laughs> like did you do you have a preference for being the appellant or the respondent and yeah. if you
0: do say that we'll just add it in <laughs> don't worry about it <laughs>
1: there's been a lot of editing promises we're going to hear this whole thing <laughs> yeah. later this is just, it's going to be re-spliced as. <laughs>
2: um, so I, I don't uh, sort of agree with the underlying premise of your question I right? get that a lot <laughs> I get that a lot <laughs> let me stop you right there counsel <laughs> Uh, Which is, I almost always know what grounds of appeal the panel is going to be concerned about, because that's one of the reasons I like appeals, uh, is if you are really prepared, you probably won't be caught off guard, as opposed to a trial where you never know what the witness is going to say or who's going to object to what or whatever. So um, most of the time, I know... I I can even usually call whether I'm going to be called on, (laughs) (laughs) although I always prepare my oral argument in response. I never just assume they're not going to call on me, but um, I almost always know what they're going to be concerned about. And I have also learned uh, that the the people we think of sort of as the most well-respected defense lawyers who do appeals, often plant the seed of their best argument in their factum but don't actually make it in their factum um it's a great and then fact. yes so uh it is a great trick but i'm on to you
0: <laughs> <laughs> so when I you're now... a trader you know the trade secret <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly <right? laughs> uh
2: no you know what i didn't know that as a defense lawyer i wish someone had told me um alan gold did that in an uh, appeal uh that Uh, He was the representing the appellant on and I so I learned that the hard way. um, But now I know. And so I always whenever I'm reading the factum of a really good lawyer, I always think, what are they really saying? And what are they really going to make the issue at the appeals? So now I have I'm usually prepared for that as well.
1: (laughs) One of the things I always teach my associates over the years is hold one thing back. Always keep one thing back. That brilliant thing that you thought of, that's going to be a great oral submission. To hold that one thing back until it comes out of your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> hold it back until oral argument, and then catch the crown uh, with their pants down. Uh, I wanted
0: to ask, since you both do appeals and trials, the there's a different sort of comfort in the preparation of both. As Jen just said, when you go into an appeal, you know your argument. You don't know what questions are going to be asked, but you can kind of your your prep is anticipating. What you might be asked and how you might answer you want to know your record but those variables of not knowing is a witness going to show up Is a witness uh what they're going to say are they going to recant change their stories and learning all this on the fly in the trial so when you're preparing for both of those how much of that leads to a certain level of stress or discomfort in the preparation of either of those
2: um so when i when I started out in private practice, when I, when we were both working for Mara and Andrish Andrish mostly did appeals and Mara mostly did trials and I, only wanted to do appeals, and a large part of that was because I was terrified of the unpredictability of trials, and I was worried that someone would say something unexpected and i wouldn 't know how to respond to it uh, and so part of the reason that I did so many appeals uh, in the first few years of my practice is because i you know I felt more comfortable there um, but over time uh, you know having done I, I really I have more appeal experience than I have trial experience, but having done some trials, I started to understand how it can be so exciting uh, when, you know, something unexpected happens and then you can make something of that or you can ask a good follow-up question and, you know, like that can, you can turn that to your advantage. Um, But in general, I still feel more comfortable in the appeal context, partly because that's where more of my experience is and partly because, as I said, I, I think, I really think that if you're really prepared in an appeal, you can almost always anticipate the questions from the bench and you can be ready to answer them in a way that just, It doesn't matter how prepared you are for a trial. You just can't be that prepared because something's going to happen.
1: I I love the unpredictability of a trial. And I hate feeling that I haven't predicted something in the court of appeal. And it happens, it happens, right? Like where you're standing there and you're like, I know everything. And then, you know, the judge uh, sitting up there on the panel says, well, what about this issue from this angle? And, I hadn't thought of it at all. And I, what I usually do to carefully answer is my first step is I send a hot rush of blood to my face and ears. <clears throat> and then, uh, I hope that they haven't noticed. And then I pause and I, you know, I can usually figure out an answer. Uh, but I hate that feeling. I hate it, I hate it. And it usually means that I haven't, like, I always think you didn't prepare that the right way. Um, and you know, I, I it's awful as opposed to a trial where something unpredictable happens, because usually the crown's ca- carrying the burden. And maybe that's the difference, is that the court of appeal, you know, I'm the, I have the burden, and, and at a trial, the crown has a burden. So if something unpredictable happens, I'm rubbing my hands together. The witness said, what? Oh, my God, it's amazing. Like, Watch how we turn this into, you know, a silk purse in cross-examination. So it's, uh, it's, the, it's, it's the exact opposite thing for the exact opposite reason.
0: And and just to, to that point, I want to go back to Jennifer with as a is it easier to present a case as a crown or to defend a case as a defense, not in terms of like winning and losing, just in terms of the presentation of your case?
2: I'm not sure that I would say one is easier or harder. I think it just depends on the facts of the case. Um, I don't I don't. Uh, I think I think I put the same amount of preparation in whether uh, you know when I was a defense lawyer or now that I'm a crown I, I don't I don't think there's a, a huge difference
0: see from my perspective it just seems that to be a crown it s- seems like so much more work in terms of the trial preparation they're building a house they have trying to
1: kick holes in the wall that's
0: right <laughs> exactly like the, the idea of building a house I would always have the, just what Craig said the anxiety that that I miss something that I is there something that I didn't prepare for? I didn't anticipate, and how I'm going to deal with it. Whereas, as a defense lawyer, you're you're hoping that that happens right. in a in a trial, right? So to me, it always seemed like the crown's job in the trial is much more uh, difficult.
1: It, it, I think that's right, and I think they really are like they really have to build, and we have to point out why they suck at it. Like this this house does not stand up. This is missing a foundation. This this wall is skewed, and 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 that's your reasonable doubt.
0: And sometimes it's easier to do that when, as you indicated before, if they're overworked.
1: You got that poor... Cr- Remember like your first couple of years, you're going to College Park and you see the Crown walk in like with a breeze, like, stack of breeze. You can't see their face. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, this is great. And you've got your one file there that you've prepped the hell out of. And you've got your case book, and you're ready to go. And you know, in walks uh, Justice Wolski and he starts yelling at the Crown. And you're like, this is awesome. Right. And and then just like watch the peace bonds come. Right. Like, And and you're a hero.
0: So I'm going to turn to um, Craig in your career. Can you tell me about a lawyer that you feel you've had the privilege of seeing uh, litigate or somebody that you haven't but you wish you had seen litigate?
1: I mean, both. Uh, Jen and I are contractually obligated to say Andre Shrek and Mara Green before <laughs> they became judges. Um, but it's also true. But it's also they were wonderful. I've never seen a strategic mind in action like Mara Green. Like she, she would like she's she would she's like here's the problem. Here's how we're gonna kill the Crown's case, uh, or Andrish who, uh, like his grasp of the law and his uh, like his, his his more even as a written advocate. Uh, like I learned so much about writing facts in front me, but this is not the answer to my question. That's our contractually obligated uh, answer. Uh, for me, it was uh, Rob Nuttall, the late, great uh, Robert Nuttall uh, who, um, you know, legendary uh, in his skills as an advocate and he and I uh, were, I, I was fortunate enough to do a uh, sex assault trial with him. There were two accused and, you know, I had my very linear cross-examination draft here you know the Posner and Dodd approach and you know here's my chapters and here's the headings and here's what we're going to do and <clears throat> it, I knew exactly where I was going but I was second on the indictment and Mr. Nuttle stood up and he looked at this complainant and he said can we agree between ourselves that when you do something that you regret you lie to yourself in your own head about how it happened And I was like, Jesus Christ, what a great opening question (laughs) in front of a jury. We all know we've done this. We all recreate memory. There's no right way to answer our question. And then that was how it went from then on in. And he was the sweetest, nice, never a raised voice, just this Irish charm. And he came in and as nice as you please, manners collegiality professionalism uh all the while killing the crown's case and he he was just such a gentleman i heard once and i didn't hear this from him but i heard once that he was doing a trial and the crown asked that the jury leave and he objected that mr nuttle was being too nice in front of the jury I I loved the guy and and I was I was so you know I was I was heartbroken uh when he passed uh, but I was so happy to have had the one trial where I could watch Rob Nuttle in action.
0: I I actually had the benefit of doing a, a homicide with Rob Nuttle.
1: How wonderful.
0: Yeah, he's he's I don't think very many people could um do it how he did no, it no you can't there's something about him he had this way of about it and you can't mimic that you can just sit there and say oh i wish i had that style
1: and that's true i think of a lot of the greats right like you can't be eddie greenspan you can't be marshall sack you know at, at, at the height of marshall sacks powers like he had a, a rhythm and and uh and a cadence and a, an intensity that was you know he was no rob nuttle right like he had a very different approach to things and something I heard, I heard this from Mark Sandler when I was a, a student at, at osgood was, uh, you know, there are a lot of great advocates, but every great advocate is only great because they know and found and are true to their own voice. And that's the way it has to be.
0: That's a great quote to put on the Law Garage podcast. There you go.
1: Write that on the wall.
0: We're going to put that one on the wall. Uh, what about you, Jen?
2: Um, So I never got to see Justice Michael Code litigate anything before he was appointed, um, but I did a long murder trial in front of him, and as you mentioned, I now teach with him at U of T, and uh, he just has the most amazing legal mind. I was trying to think of how to describe it when I was driving here, and I was thinking... You know that feeling when you're really ready for litigation, like the night before or the morning of when you have distilled your argument into its purest form and you could say in two sentences, this is the legal point I'm relying on and here's why it matters to my case. And you're you're so prepared that you don't even need your notes. You can just do it and it's like flying and it's the best feeling. That's his command of the whole criminal law. Because <laughs> he, <has, laughs> he argued most of it. Yes, he has distilled in his mind the criminal law. And if we needed any proof of that, last year he very kindly agreed to switch lectures for me, uh, with me. And he very nicely sent me his lecture notes because he had taught this class in past years. And it was one page handwritten for a two-hour lecture. <laughs> And I have seen him give that lecture, and he is more eloquent than I could ever be, because it's all up in his head. So I always want to say to our students, I haven't done it yet. I don't know if he would find it funny, but I always want to say the criminal code was not named after him, but it ought to have been, <laughs> because <laughs> he has all that law in his head. So I wish I'd had a chance to see him litigate, but it certainly was. So uh,
1: can I tell a quick Michael Code story? <laughs> so I, I did get to see Uh, Michael Code litigate so I was so Shrek and Green we rented space at Sack Goldblatt Mitchell and what a team it was Frank Adario, Phil Campbell, Michael Code um, Mel Green and they were on some extradition case I don't know what it was Um, but I heard that Michael was where I was at 361 I was doing like a set date or something I don't know what I was doing Uh, but I heard Michael Code was litigating this abuse of process motion in courtroom four or three, whatever it was. And I'd seen Michael, I've talked to Michael countless times in the office, and what you would probably not know from appearing before Justice Code is that in the office, he was the most soft-spoken, uh, quiet gentleman, just like, oh, you know, uh, Marco, what do you think is the constitutional significance of the Rehi decision in light of this? And he had these, like, questions. I would hide under my desk if I heard him coming. I'm like, I don't want to get asked this. I don't, I don't know the answer. But he was, you know, just very, very soft-spoken around the office. So, uh, and I hear he and Mel Green are arguing this uh, this, uh, ar- this abusive process. So I, w- I walk into the court and I sit down. And this guy, who I've never heard speak above a whisper, is hitting the podium like maybe the crown attorney would like to return to a day when you can have trial by ambush but that is not today and like and i'm like oh this is amazing and i sat down and he won of course
0: <laughs> jennifer trehern and craig bottomley i can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the law garage and share your experiences with our listeners continuing legal education can take various forms and i believe there's something to gain from just talking to our colleagues which is something that i've really missed throughout this pandemic as uh, you both may have probably guessed so i'd like to thank you both for being here and if there's anything you want to plug please uh take the opportunity
1: i noticed the doors are locked from the outside so i assume that you missed us that's the brothers no i like that you think you're getting rid of us that's the real thing i've missed so much council lounge i've missed the inner like the best part of being a criminal lawyer is the council lounge where you can go and talk badly about the opposition or the judge that's giving you a hard time I miss it so much and uh oh i'm anything you what, you want it? you can't plug anything you're a crown what are you going to plug your quilting
2: <laughs> <laughs> i'm not plugging anything but thank you for inviting me to be here thanks was, for having it us. it was right. a lot it's, of fun it's a
1: pleasure to see you. i'm so and this is uh, i love this space i kept i didn't realize it was an actual garage for the law garage and this this is wonderful it's, i'm so happy to see you thanks for having us thanks guys
0: Thank you for listening to The Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out Season 1 and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansonwal. The Law Garage is a Jay Mike podcast production.